Our text this morning is from 1 Peter 3, verses 8 through 17. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. I don't know how familiar you are with Peter's letter. I hope that you've read it. It's not a long read, though it's absolutely the kind of uh, text that we can really be gripped by and, and let wash over us many times. I think if, if you're looking at a circle and you're going to color in the circle— Paul is the kind of writer where, like, the, the, the outer ridge is darker because he colored very carefully and very slowly, perhaps. And James just colors outside the lines. Like, it turns red, but, yeah, it doesn't matter. Like, I'm just going to say the things, like, when I want to, kind of diatribe fashion. So he's very clear in that way. Peter is more like circling, and he keeps bringing up the same things. Last week, I read the text out of order for, for two reasons. One— I copy and pasted it into the bulletin in the wrong order, but, but the reason it didn't throw off the sermon was, and the other reason is because I was reading from the bulletin and not from my Bible, but the reason it didn't throw off my sermon is Peter makes so many points over and over again. I mean, it's almost like we're back in chapter 2 talking about reviling and evil words again and blessing. Peter makes his points in overlapping fashion, and that makes the book very, very rich for us. He says the word finally, and you're looking at First Peter, and you're like, isn't there a second Peter? Are we halfway through? Like, there's about 25 verses in each chapter. Why is he saying finally? It's another um, note to us of the urgency with which Peter both understands the Holy Spirit's call to write this letter to these seven groups of churches, these churches in these seven areas, but also the urgency for us. I was reading a book uh, this week called Our Reasonable Faith by Herman Bovink. It's um, mediumly thick, but delightful. And he talked about the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as similar to that of an artist. And so if Paul is maybe more of a portrait painter, like it's going to take him a while to do what he's doing, I think Peter's more like a plein air painter, you know, who goes outside, they have as much time as the sun will allow. And he was inspired in that fashion. And you see, as an artist, he's moved by Psalm 34 and, and includes that in, in his um, encouragement to us as he tells us to bless. That's the only command, that's the only direct command, non-implicit command in the text, is that we bless. 
And this is Peter utilizing poetry of both hope and answering God. That's Eugene Peterson's description of what the Psalms are for, is answering God. And it's also a reminder to us and a teaching to us that we learn through plain language, scientific language, and poetic language. Beautiful language, precise language, and mundane language. We need all of them to understand the things of God in our limited ways and to relate as Christians in the world. And so Peter utilizes Psalm 34. I read this week, I haven't, I haven't double fact-checked this, but I trust the person who said it. There are only 12 verses in the whole New Testament that don't in one way or another reference, sorry, did I say Old Testament? 12 verses in the New Testament that don't in one way or another reference the Old Testament. Peter is here using Psalm 34 to support his point that we bless. You see that in verse 9 right there in the middle? In one sense, verse 8 is specific. Unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind are the things that flow from being a follower of Christ. Understanding that because of his work, we're now a living stone, going back to chapter 2. Verse 9 is a little more general. What does it look like generally? It means we don't, pay re- evil, we don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Perhaps you remember that word is uh, essentially verbally abuse. So when someone verbally abuses us, we do not seek to cause them the pain that they caused to us back. It doesn't mean that we just take it. It doesn't mean we pretend to smile. It doesn't mean it's all okay. But Christians are very fundamentally those that do not seek to cause the pain back that someone caused to us. Entirely different matter if you're stepping in front of someone else. That's a whole different conversation. In one sense, chapter 8 is what we do. Or, sorry, verse 8 is what we do, and verse 9 is what we don't do. I remember a piece of parenting advice I received when my kids were young. It says, it's more effective to teach your kids what to do rather than what not to do. I still find that compelling. I still find that really hard to do. Most of the time, because I don't realize until they did what they weren't supposed to do, right? I have an encouragement for you. Many of you are, are very passionate and thoughtful followers of Jesus. When we have a list like this, perhaps it's overwhelming, perhaps you're caught up in the, the beauty of it and you sense the urgency of what Peter's saying in verse 8 specifically. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And unity of mind doesn't mean we all think the same things. It actually means we're comfortable being on mission together even amidst our differences. I want to encourage you in light of this chapter, which wasn't written to us, but was written for us, to pick one of those. I'm going to go through them kind of slowly. And I'm going to encourage you to pick one of them and then pray about it this week. Don't pray about all of them. That would become a vague nothing of a prayer, I think. Not that God can't still utilize it, but let's pick one and work on it. Unity of mind. Sympathy. It's important. Be sympathetic to other people. Brotherly love. This is specifically talking about our spiritual family, which is incredibly important. Not all that Christians do is care about other Christians, but it's very important in the Christian life that we do family well. Tender heart. A humble mind. I'd encourage you to pick one of those. And if you're really daring, ask a trusted friend which one you think you could grow in the most. 
I'm going to have to do this later in the day since I'm asking you to do it. And man, every time I do this, it's worth it, and it stings. You know, humility comes up a lot in the scriptures, and as, as some of you have noted to me, um, kind of just straightforwardly, it's hard for me to um, stick with the same words. And as I was looking at humility as a, um, a virtue here that Peter's encouraging, I define it this way. You have accurate self-knowledge with an ability and willingness through repentance to change. I think that's what Peter's getting at. I think that overlaps well with most of the rest of the New Testament when it talks about humility. I'll say it again. Humility is an accurate self-knowledge with an ability and willingness through repentance and the power of the Holy Spirit to change. I wonder if you hold grudges. I wonder if you're easily angered, and I'm not trying to shame you. I'm trying to make a point about the beginning of humility. I wonder if you're willing to say you're sorry, and then you're able to change. And then I wonder what would happen if you rated yourself on one to five, those couple of questions, and then compared it or gave it to your neighbor after they rated you the same way. So your neighbor rates you, you rate you, you look at them together. A humble person wouldn't be surprised, and their answers would agree. And none of us are ultimately humble, but we are all being grown in humility by the Holy Spirit. And I think a great deal of our disproportionate anger and frustration and shame and fear are linked to places in us that are not healed and whole and in fact humbled by the Lord. And the reason I encourage you to pray about those things is because they are the foundation by which we bless, which we are commanded to do here. That's the commandment in verse 8. Bless, for to this you are called. And the word is not the word used in Matthew 5, uh, which is about, uh, largely about humility. The, v- the word is good word. So the word for blessing is good word. You logos, like a eulogy, a good word. So we bring with us a good word. This is why it's going to tie into evangelism. We are commanded to bless those we come into contact with. And Peter is fully convinced that a significant part of the way that you're going to bless the people in your life is you're not going to repay when they slander you, which means say false things about you to hurt you. And you're also not going to repay when you're reviled, when you're verbally attacked, and Peter goes back and forth on if you didn't deserve it or if you did deserve it. Like, it's, it's kind of the same Christianly. Don't attack in return. And sometimes we do attack in return, and then we go to other Christian texts to find out how to apologize and ask for forgiveness, repent, that we don't do that again. What that means is when someone attacks you, your goal is not to cause a proportionate pain in their life. That's the very definition of unforgiveness. We often mistake unforgiveness. We get mis- unforgiveness all tangled up with relational restoration and reconciliation, and those are different matters, though they're linked. But the beginning of the gospel is learning to be a person who does not repay pain for pain, which causes us pain, but not as much pain as it causes ultimately, and even in, really in the moment, when we desire to cause pain back. In some respects, in both chapter 2 and in chapter 3, Peter's saying, you're going to suffer, might as well be for God. When he contrasts unjust suffering and, and just suffering in both this chapter and the previous chapter. And again, he utilizes poetry to support and describe what it looks like for one who understands the love of God 
and therefore desires to bless God through their worship, honor Christ. That's actually the other command. I said this is the only command in the text. There's another one, which is honor Christ in all things. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Peter's pretty convinced um, that hypocrisy has all sorts of negative effects in our life. One of the things that I didn't get to talk about, or I, I chose not to talk about last week for the sake of time mostly, is when he says to husbands and wives, um, he talks about wives submitting to the husband, which is putting his interests in front of her relationally. There's more to be said about submission, but relationally, that's what that means. How often do we do that? Well, that's a wisdom question. To husbands, he says, live in an understanding way, which means listen, learn to care specifically. He also says that your prayers might not be hindered. What does that mean? Well, it means that when we're praying in a hypocritical way and we're living contrary uh, to what becomes a follower of Christ, if we're in a place of unforgiveness... Our prayers are not as powerful. Here, Peter's talking about uh, utilizing Psalm 34, talking about um, the life of a person that lives as though God doesn't exist and hasn't made his will known about how to worship him and love the neighbors he's put into our life. And then he mentions obtain a blessing. I'm kind of bouncing around a little bit, utilizing Psalm 34, and then back to verse 9. Bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. If you want to know what he means by called, go back and read chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Not right now. In a minute. What's the blessing? And this is so important. This is so important. This is so important. I meet so many Christians that don't understand this. When Jesus appeared on the scene, Mark chapter 1, he talks about a kingdom. There are daily kingdom benefits to being a follower of Christ. And here's my explanation of what they are. And this is based on my study of Matthew chapter 6 and the other, and Luke chapters 11 and 18, specifically 11. And, and what the disciples saw, especially when Jesus would rise from his times of prayer. Because in watching him get up from prayer, they asked him again, even after he had taught them about prayer, they asked him again to teach them to pray because they wanted what he had and what they could see in him. The blessing that we receive through prayer, through honoring Christ, through acting like a Christian, through not repaying evil for evil, is a sense of intimacy with the Father. And peace. Our heart, peace is spoken to our hearts by the power of the new covenant and the Holy Spirit. And we have a sense of our mission. You are loved and liked by God because he is God and you are you. The work of Jesus did that because you cannot save yourself and you do in fact sin. And you have a mission. You have work and neighbors in your life to represent Christ too. And I know you do it imperfectly and yet you're called Bless, for to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. And the blessing is eternal, both in life after this and the life after that. Because there's this life, and then there's heaven, and there's new heavens and new earth. But, 
the blessing Peter's talking about and the one that Jesus calls a reward in Matthew chapter 6, I think is peace in your heart, a sense of intimacy with God, and a sense of your role as a follower of Christ in the world. Regardless of age, vocation, relative gift set, that's what we receive when we act like a follower of Christ in worship and in prayer, and especially when people attack us, perhaps. We bless as commanded with a full hope. And I love hope, and I wonder, (laughs) I love the idea of it. I love the New Testament teaching on it. I love how Peter brings it up here. Peter is talking about it as part of faith, not a separate thing. Even though when when Paul talks about it, he says faith, hope, and love, right? Those are at least overlapping, if not parts of a whole, right? The problem anytime Christians talk about hope is we, we define it by expectation, an expectation of a future we're either pretty sure is going to happen or like fully sure or not sure at all, I hope. That is not how the New Testament talks about it. The New Testament is talking about it as part of your faith. Part of your full expectation in Christ's promises and kingdom. It is an, intellect, it is an intellectual thing and an emotional thing and something that you know without even thinking about it. You know when you're driving and you see something and you dodge it successfully? You didn't, you didn't think, hmm... If there's an obstruction in the road, I should swerve to the left, not to the right, because there's a car to me to the right. Like, you have an instinct. Hope is both something that you're confident in intellectually, because you understand it in some measure. It's also an emotional thing, because it's such good news, but it's also instinctive. You know. Some of you are a little more wired like this than others. And I hope that one of your questions is, how do I receive in a way that I can sense more fully the reality of that in my life? Might actually receive the blessing that you're talking about. One of the ways is worship. One of the ways is when someone slanders you or revile you, you don't pay them back in kind. And another way is tell people about your faith. This text, I know, troubles some of you. This text, when we get to, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, but then always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Probably the most uh, clear call to evangelism for all of us in the scriptures, at least in my mind. Go and make disciples sounds big and Judean. Anyway, I like this one because there's nuance to it. But the word always has shamed me in the past, and I know has oppressed some of you in your minds. This uh, reflects the urgent tone of the book. It doesn't mean that your description of your faith needs to be perfect right now. In fact, that would be ironic, right? How could you have a good conscience? Because your understanding of faith, and especially how to explain it to someone else, is always going to be partial at best. Always means being ready in terms of willing. So if someone asks, in, in many respects, Peter is saying, if someone asks you, if you call Jesus Lord, you say yes. And that's about the extent of the power of always. I don't know about you, but in, in my experience, this comes in small batches. And something about reading this text makes me think that someone's going to ask me at Starbucks when I have an hour and nothing to do, Tell me about your hope. 
And that's never happened to me in my life. And yet I have a number of friends who are not followers of Jesus. And in the last six months, there have been little moments, small batches, where I get to talk to them a little bit about hope. About a month ago, a friend, or I called a friend late at night, and uh, I, had, I had talked to him about the gospel when I was in seminary. So that's 12, 13 years ago. And he revisited that conversation for the first time in 12 years. And we didn't talk a ton about hope, partly because of some other circumstances, the conversation. And we didn't talk a ton about the gospel, but it was the first time that he had responded to me sharing that. A friend was telling me about relationship issues, and this friend used to call himself a follower of Christ, doesn't anymore. I'm happy to let the Holy Spirit sort all that out, but we were having coffee, and they were talking about relationship troubles. And I said, you're familiar with the scriptural teaching on this? Like, it explains part of the pain you're describing to me. And the person kind of smiled because they don't subscribe to that anymore. Small batches, talking about hope. My neighbor really wanted to see the new Star Wars whenever that came out. When was it? Okay. He doesn't know, which is fine. I don't know either. And after we went and saw the new Star Wars, we went over to get a drink at Applebee's, and we started talking about parenting. And it's the first time that there was a window for us to talk a little bit about some of this stuff. The hope that I have as a parent is inextricably connected to my hope as a Christian. And I didn't, I was gentle and respectful. I could tell how much he did. I did not want to talk about these things. They come in small batches. And don't let the urgency of Peter's encouragement to you make you think you need to have all of this figured out all the time. Reading a book on apologetics right now, the questions and problem, the questions people have about Christianity and the problems they have about Christianity, because I want to learn more about it. I'd like to get a little bit better over time. Here's one way to look at it. If someone asks you what you think about Christ, I think our answers need to be both intellectual and existential. And by existential, what I mean is what does it mean to be human and what does faith have to do with the dread, to use the philosophical language surrounding existentialism, the dread that is on every person. We might also call it loneliness or despair. And not everyone despairs. And not everyone experiences it the same way, but that's the language of the, of the philosophers. Our expression of our hope needs to be both. And most of us lean one, one way or the other on that. And yet we need both. My encouragement to you is to explore a little bit. If a friend of yours asks you a question and you haven't thought about it before, perhaps the most incredible evangelistic answer you could get is, you know, I kind of want to look that up. I'm going to study a little bit. You want to read with me? My favorite evangelism story, and I know I've told this in church before, but it's been a while. I was, I was interning with a church in Colorado Springs, and um, one of the students was sharing Christ with one of her friends and asked her friend, what book represented what her friend believed? And she said, Atlas Shrugged. Those of you that have read Atlas Shrugged were like, okay. So they read Atlas Shrugged together. About 950 pages, give or take. And they talked about it. And they talked about the philosophy in it. And then the other woman said to my friend, what would you like to read? And they read Mere Christianity together. This woman became a follower of Jesus, which takes time and humility, and gentleness, and respect, and prayer. The area I would like to grow in most is a, as one who shares 
who gives a defense of the hope that is within me is how much I pray for my friends who are not yet followers of Christ. But Peter's point is that we're willing to explain. We're willing to explain without hypocrisy as best we can. My question is, what do you think about the, the gospel? And I'm going to ask some other questions too. But when you think about it, do you think about the evidence of the resurrection of Christ? Do you think about the system of religion that is Christianity, which includes some amount of reckoning with the black mark, the black eyes of the history of Christianity? Be that stuff more current or crusades or things like that. The record of Christians. Of Christians. What do you think about the development of the Bible? That's one I see a lot in social media and with some of my friends. They don't trust the way that the Bible came together. And I know you don't have unlimited time, but what do you think about the gospel? And some of you, very, very developed thoughts. Some of my favorite uh, cynics and skeptics have told me how they wrestled so intellectually, philosophically, and theologically with the divinity of Christ. What do you feel about Jesus also. And this is, I don't, I mean, I know some of you are like just threw up a little bit, you know, in your mouth because you don't want the touchy-feely gospel. But when Peter talks about giving an account for the hope that is in you, he means you specifically. I've noticed, I I know some people have trouble sleeping at night because their anxiety. For me, it's a little bit more in the morning. And especially the Psalms, through the lens of the gospel, speak to my heart. Peace in the mornings. What's your favorite aspect of the person of Christ? Is it his gentleness with those with honest questions? Is it his harshness with the religious leaders of the day? What's your favorite part of the gospel? Which, by the way, means you could probably summarize the gospel, maybe start there, but what do you think about the gospel? What do you feel about Jesus? And then what do you know about Jesus that you don't even have to think about? A number of weeks ago, I asked why you're in church. And a person wrote to me, and I think this person is very instinctive in a good way, like their instincts are trustworthy and quick. And they said, I go to church because I would die otherwise. And I think they mean die scripturally, the way that scripture defines it, as in, I want to live. And that means I need to be in the company of people who are followers of Christ. I need to hear and sing about and confess words of life. What do you know about Christ instinctively, without even thinking about it, the same way that you would dodge the tire in the road. And the, this, this is my latest way of fighting a shallow understanding of the salvation and the peace and the kingdom life that Jesus offered. One way to describe it is evangelical Gnosticism, which overlaps with something uh, Western or Platonic dualism, and so many of you just yawned right now. But listen, this is not head and heart. It's not... If I believe this, then everything's fine. Like there's not a separation biblically. And so when we're talking about our hope and when we're being encouraged by Peter that we need to be able to defend our hope, it involves all of these things. And I know that one of them is dominant in you and one of them is fine and the other one is like, I don't even know about that one. I'm a heart guy. I know, I know you know. It's fine. And that means I can grow in terms of what I know without emotion or having to think about it, and can grow thinking. The reason that I titled the sermon the way that I did is because 
I want to remind you of what I hope you already know. The Holy Spirit is growing us up. And it is time for us to lean into that and to receive the Holy Spirit's wholeness as it grows us up into women and men who proclaim Christ intellectually and existentially, head, heart, and in our very being. Our shallow understanding of the gospel, our the dualistic way we often look at spirituality and the kingdom as Christ described it is robbing us of joy and it's stunting our growth. Would you pray with me? Father, for those of us that trust you, would you help us to trust you more deeply? And for those of us that are considering the claims of your Son, that he is and was God, and therefore his work reconciles us, would you help us to consider, would you help those who are considering to consider? Holy Spirit, would you speak peace to our hearts, that we might know how to gently and respectfully, but honestly and clearly, Describe the hope that you have given us and filled us with. Hope in you. Amen.